As we finish up, this is, this is our final week. If you uh, haven't gotten that memo, this is week 10 of Acts Part 1. So uh, your book is, is concluded. We have no more homework to do the next few weeks. Um, you get some time off from thinking about Acts and, and the early church and what the Lord was doing here. Um, we will return for Acts Part 2 in February, early February. Um, I think the first uh, Wednesday in February is the, f- the first, maybe? Um, honestly, I can't remember. But I-, I think the 8th is when we'll start. So we'll send out emails and let you know. There will be another like sign-up process in case you don't want to participate. Um, it'll be $10 again for the study book. Um, hope you guys will, will return to join us. But... Uh, but yeah, between now and then, I hope you don't stop reading God's Word. You know, our goal, as we said at the beginning, is to try and help you develop some healthy habits of daily study, uh, to, to give you good resources that can help you think about good ways to ask questions of the Bible. Honestly, that's, that's the foundation of good Bible study, is to, to read a text and to ask yourself questions about what you're reading, to, to think about what is happening here, what words don't I, don't I understand, what ideas are playing out that... Um, that I don't really get, and, and to keep digging until you find answers. Uh, usually the, the diamonds are there, they just have to be dug for, um, and the more you look, the more you'll, you'll see them. So uh, I hope you'll continue studying something, uh, even if it's not Acts, um, but then we'll come back for, for Acts Part 2 in, in the new year. Um, this morning, uh, I'm going to jump straight into teaching content. I know we've been tracking some themes. Um, I have eight points today, so I'm going to try to get through them all. If I don't, uh, I'll, I'll uh, include the themes on the podcast. I'll record something in my office later and, and tag it on there. But, um, but I'd love to just jump straight in. There's a lot of stuff playing out in this passage. Um, I really, as I was praying and studying, I just really want to focus in on Barnabas. I think what he is up to in this passage and what we've seen of him previously is really significant. And it, it's going to set the stage for, for part two. He's a very significant character uh, for the second half of Acts. Um, so I want to focus in on him, but I didn't want to, you know, at the same time, I didn't want to discount some of the other big things playing out. So I've got three big points that are like overview what's going on in this, in this uh, chapter we read that we need to pay attention to. But then uh, I'll come back and zero in on Barnabas with, with five more points. So we're going to speed through this stuff. Um, I, th- I think we can get it all in. Um, what's playing out in this passage? Three, three overview points. Number one, the gospel goes to the nations. Um, So again, we've been tracking since day one sort of what Luke is offering us as an overview of the book of Acts, the advance of the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's uh, Acts 1.8. We told you that was the the thesis statement there at the beginning. Jesus in this book is creating the church, filling her with power and unleashing her into the world to, to take the gospel everywhere. And I think Sam did a marvelous job last week of giving us an overview of how that's played out in the first uh, several chapters. So I won't do that again, um, but I'll just remind you we've been seeing that. The gospel has overtaken Jerusalem. It's begun to spill out of Jerusalem into the cities surrounding Jerusalem and, and Judea. Uh, you saw it go forth into uh, Samaria and uh, even out of the nation of, of Israel with this persecution into um, Syria and Damascus. So we've seen the gospel going forth, but it just, it just explodes this chapter. Right there uh, uh, cha- at the end of chapter 11, verses 19 and, and 20, we see several uh, new places mentioned. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. 
the persecution back from chapter 8 of, of Stephen when he was martyred has sent Jews really far. And they're speaking the word everywhere they go. Uh, you see Cyprus and Cyrene also mentioned there. And I want to I show you just how far these places are. Maybe you were looking at the maps in the back of your book. So this is where we've been focused um, in the, the central part of Israel. Jerusalem's down there in the south. Uh, the gospel has gone up to Samaria. Um, even with uh, Cornelius last week, he was up in Caesarea. So uh, the gospel has gone all the way up here. And we saw with, with uh, the persecution of the, the Christians in Damascus back in chapter uh, 9 when, when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. We, we know there's Christians up here. But we're seeing mentioned Phoenicia. So it, it's up there. But even more so, this little box is this little area. What's mentioned here is Cyprus. What's mentioned here is Antioch and also Cyrene. So that's down in Africa, what would be modern day uh, Libya. So I just want you to feel that the gospel is really extending out from Jerusalem. You're, you're seeing it stretch towards the ends of the earth. That is really what's going to come into focus in Acts part two. The gospel really stretching into the Roman Empire um, in, in profound ways as churches are planted all over the place. Uh, but here, don't miss it. It's already beginning, even as we're ending part one. God's fulfilling His Word. He's faithful to build His church. He's faithful to use her as she's witnessing to the Gospel to extend the, the, the footprint of Christianity uh, to Jews and to Gentiles in new places even far outside of Israel. So, I just want you to see that Gospel going forth. Uh, second point here, the state begins to persecute the church. I don't want you to miss that. Um, up to now, we have seen a lot of persecution playing out, even a martyrdom happening. But all of that persecution has been uh, from the Jewish church. From, from I guess you wouldn't call it the church. The Jewish people. Uh, so this has been sort of an inter-religious spat. The Jews, the, the early Christians wouldn't have called themselves Christians. In fact, it's not till this chapter that we see them called Christians. They still considered themselves Jews. And, and the Jewish people who weren't Christians looked at them as like a, almost a cult within Judaism. Oh, these people think the Messiah has come. We don't. But it was, it was sort of perceived at first as a, uh, a, a branch of Judaism, a, a part of Judaism. And so the, the persecution that was playing out was between Jews. The, the Jewish um, Sanhedrin, the high council, the Pharisees, the scribes, all persecuting Christians, trying to stamp them out because they were corrupting their view um, I obviously don't believe that they were corrupting anything, but, but the, the Sanhedrin viewed the early Christians as corrupting Judaism. So the persecution was coming from Jews. But now for the first time, we are seeing uh, outside secular culture beginning to persecute Christians. So this is Herod. He is the king uh, from Rome over Judea. So he, uh, you, you've seen other Herods in the Bible this is a different Herod than the, the Herod who was the king when Jesus was born. That was his grandfather, the, the one who's here now. It's also a different Herod than uh, the Herod who we see at Jesus' crucifixion. That was this Herod's uncle. Uh, this Herod uh, is a part of the Herodian dynasty. There were several Herods um, who were all related to one another. And they're the, the kings that have ruled this part of the Roman Empire. So they're connected with the emperors in Rome. Uh, they are responsible. They're the state. They're the, the authority under the emperor, under the Roman Empire for this part of the world. And they're the ones who are now persecuting uh, the Christians. So Herod lays, it says, violent hands upon the church. It's a little bit vague there. We don't know what happened, but we can presume there was beatings. There was uh, 
uh, I, I think there were killings as well. We, we get mentioned one specific killing, James. This is the first apostle who was martyred. Uh, we've seen the martyrdom of Stephen back in chapter 6 and 7. Uh, but now we are seeing uh, one of the 12, one of the original 12 being killed. This is uh, James, the brother of John. He was one of the original sons of thunder, as we see in the, the Gospels. Um, and it pleased the Jews. You know, there's this fight happening in Jerusalem. And so this, the, the state is trying to uh, intervene and keep things calm. You know, Herod's most you know, sincere concern is that Rome doesn't get mad at him for what's playing out in Jerusalem. He needs to keep things calm, no riots, no, no fights, so that you know, Rome doesn't have to deal with problems. So he's, he's stepping into this you know, Jewish uh, scuffle that's playing out in Jerusalem to uh, get involved. He kills, he kills James, and he's going to kill Peter as well. You know, you, that's the context that we see when, when Peter's imprisoned. Um, and God does this amazing miracle, uh, sends this angel to release it. But all of it just sort of showcases persecution is beginning from the state to the church. And that's going to ratchet up enormously in the future. In fact, when you read the epistles of the New Testament, especially 1 Peter, which we just studied a little while ago um, uh, here at Emmaus, you, you get this sense of great persecution for Christians. That's 100% accurate. The Roman Empire for the first 300 years of Christianity's existence had a formal policy of killing a Christian. If you were caught being a Christian, you'd be killed. They, they didn't go seek you out, but they did. If anybody you know, turned you in as a Christian, they would bring you on trial. And if you didn't recant, if you didn't confess the emperor as Lord and stop worshiping this Jesus, they would, they would murder you. The holiness of Christianity, the, the uh, unwillingness to worship other gods, the unwillingness to participate in sexual indulgences, the, the, the Christian lifestyle of the early church was so distinctive from the secular world at that time that they were persecuted and killed. Um, and it's beginning here. But I, just, I wanted to draw your attention to that just to, in the, I think there's this, this thought that enters our minds sometimes. We're very myopic. We forget what happened in the two millennia you know, between when Jesus came and now. And sometimes we think when we look at our own culture, we get really worried for the church. We see the secularization that's playing out. We see the, the dangers playing out in even our government. You know, uh, I heard on the radio last night that, that Warnock won. Apparently, Georgia's turning blue. Um, you know, and these things can be very distressing to us uh, as believers to, to worry about what this world will look like for our children, to worry about what this world will look like for the church of tomorrow. And I just want to remind you, family, God's church is going to be just fine. The church was born into the midst of persecution. The church thrived in the midst of persecution. God knows how to protect His church. It's not the White House. It's not Congress. It's not our government that is the great protector of the church of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. He's well on His throne. He knows how to, he knows how to care for us. So just have confidence in that. I, I didn't want to miss that opportunity to point that out. Um, and then the third point here, uh, playing out in this, this uh, text this morning, the kingdom of God is stronger than the, kingdom, the kingdoms of man. I love how Luke concludes chapter 12 with this... Uh, description of the death of Herod. So here's Herod, the, the first state persecutor of the church, and you get verses 23 and 24 just creating this great juxtaposition of the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. So how does verse 23 end? Herod is eaten by worms and breathed his last. So he just dies. This guy who was flexing his muscles against the church and successfully killing Christians, 
He dies, but look at verse 24. The Word of God increased and multiplied. Um, it's just a beautiful reminder that uh, God's kingdom is strong. It's, it's not going to be destroyed by the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of men will fade. The kingdom of God will keep on going. And I, I love it too. Remember uh, back in Acts chapter 1, you know, Jesus gives this great commission to his, his uh, disciples there. Go and, you know, um, you'll, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But remember the context. They had asked him a question. Remember what that question was? Will you now build your kingdom? Is it time for you to set up the kingdom of Israel again? You know, they were wanting him to, to establish Israel as a great nation. And here we are 12 chapters later, and uh, look, the kingdom of God is being built. The kingdom of God is strong. It's not what they expected. It's not what they necessarily wanted, but, but God's kingdom is absolutely being built and established with strength as the church continues to witness um, to Jesus. So uh, just, just wanted you to see those things. That's uh, where part one ends. Part two will pick up in chapter 13, and we'll see God continue to establish his, his kingdom going well beyond the bounds of, um, of Israel. Um, so with all that, let's look at Barnabas, because uh, he is becoming one of my favorite characters in Acts and, and perhaps all of the New Testament. Um, he's only appeared twice so far. I want to remind you of the verses where he was. First, Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. This is the description we get of him there. Thus, Joseph, this is the early church when they were all you know, giving their money and, and, and caring for one another. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the first thing we know about Barnabas is his name is not actually Barnabas. It's Joseph. He's Joe the Jew. Um, he is uh, from Cyprus. He's not from Jerusalem, but somehow he's back in Jerusalem at this point. And he's apparently so encouraging that the disciples change his name and he's giving uh, his wealth. He has fields. He's a landowner. That's significant at that time. And he's selling it to bring money to the apostles. So that's the first glimpse we get at him. The, the second time he appears is in chapter 9 at the conversion of Saul. Remember Saul uh, persecuting the church. He gets saved and he is coming to Jerusalem. And this is what we're told. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him for they did not believe he was a disciple. They thought he was a traitor still, a uh, double agent. But who was it who took him? Barnabas. And, and Bob, you did a great job of pointing that out that week. But, um, but yeah, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, had spoke to him. It's Barnabas who, who uh, vouches for him. It's Barnabas who's willing to be the first guy to go to this guy and, and see if he's legit. He extends faith. He extends trust. Um, and now here in, in this chapter, chapter 11, who is it that they picked to go up to this new bustling church that's happening up in Antioch? Uh, Gentiles and, and Jews worshiping together, great number adding to the Lord. They send up, the, the church in Jerusalem hears about this, and they send up Barnabas to them. So, and you get this great description of him. I see five things, five things I love about Barnabas that I think are really profound, all things that I admire that we should emulate as well. Let me cycle through these pretty quickly here. Number one, Barnabas knew how to encourage he knew how to encourage people. His name is Joseph, but he got this nickname, Barnabas, as a gift from the apostles, uh, we're told. This was given to him by Peter or James or John or one of the twelve, specifically during the days of the early church. It means son of encouragement, which tells us something really significant. None of you go by nicknames, probably. Uh, we as your pastors probably haven't given you nicknames. 
Um, this is significant. This doesn't happen often. This guy was such an encourager, so profoundly encouraging that he, uh, you know, got this nickname. He knew how to encourage. He, he was the kind of guy that you walked away from a conversation with just wanting to be a more faithful believer, wanting to be a more faithful follower of Jesus. He, he never condemned. He never shamed people. He, he just strengthened them. Every conversation he had with people, you walked away stronger. That's what that word means, encourage. It's like even in the, 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 the way it's uh, spelled, you can feel what it means. It's putting courage into somebody. The, the definition in the dictionary is to give support, to give confidence or hope to someone. It's putting courage in somebody way down deep. And this is what he does uh, in his life. It's why he got the nickname. But that's exactly what he's doing in this church in Antioch. What's his message to them? Look at, uh, where is it? Verse uh, da, 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 23. He, he comes to this church. He sees the grace of God. He's glad about it, and he exhorts them, which is another word for encourage, and he says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, keep going. What you're living for is worth it. What you're doing is, is incredible. The, the, the truth you found, the gospel that you found is everything. Don't move on to anything new. Keep going. Stay steadfast. Uh, keep following Jesus. That's what encouragement is. It's the strengthening for the future. It's, it's when you're feeling weary, when you're feeling hopeless, when you're feeling like you can't continue, somebody strengthening you, putting courage in you to keep on the right path. Um, and that's what, what encouragement is. That's how it's supposed to be in the church. And I think it's in great need in our day today. You know, we, are, uh, we live in a world where we are uh, rarely encouraged. You know, all the ads on TV are constantly trying to sell us stuff, and they do that by pointing out our deficiencies. You know, if you... If you uh, want to be a real man, then you'll, you'll buy this truck and then you'll have a deep voice like the, the guy who's talking in the commercial. Uh, you need this Bowflex so you can be a real man with muscles like the guys in the commercials. You know, uh, you're not sufficient. Come buy this and it'll help you be enough. Um, and, and I think even in our relationships with friends, with families, with, with, uh, with our bosses, even our spouses, people are quick to point out flaws. They're slow to point out strengths. They're slow to encourage. Um, even, even as guys, I mean, think about the last time you were sitting around with a, with a group of guys going hunting or uh, going to Waffle House or going anywhere. You know, we have this way about us where we, it's, it's sarcasm, it's jesting, we excuse it. But what do we do? We pick. You know, we point out flaws and we laugh about it. We do the exact opposite of encouraging. You know, Barnabas was the kind of guy who did the exact opposite of jesting. He, like, would look at you and see something good and he'd call it out and compliment you and tell you to keep on going with it. I mean, what a dude. We need to be men like this. This is rare and it's unusual, but Barnabas got it. So much so that he became known as son of encourager. He's just, he's just Barnabas. We can't even call him Joseph anymore. That does, that's not appropriate. Second thing, Barnabas was faithful. He was a faithful man. We don't know a ton about Barnabas. He's only shown up so far in two verses. <laughs> But the fact that he's the one who's sent to this new church plant up in Antioch, to me, is just a significant testimony to his faithfulness. He's not an apostle, y'all. He doesn't hold a significant role in the early church. He's not a deacon. He's not an apostle. He's just, a, by all appearances, you know, just a good, ordinary, faithful church member who God chose to use in powerful ways. And I just think there's something very significant about that. Like not needing to be named, not needing to be the center of it all, but just being faithful where the Lord's planted you. So faithful that the men around you and, and the people around you, the leaders around you say, hey, we need you up here. We need you in, the, in this spot. Barnabas didn't go and seek this out. He was sent. 
The people around him saw his faithfulness and they sent him out as a gift to this young church plant to encourage them in their new faith. This is who Barnabas was. He was just a faithful man of God. Unnamed. You're not going to hear a ton of... I mean, he shows up in Acts part 2, but uh, he, he doesn't have letters that endured to this day. He's not the guy that everybody thinks of when they think of the early church. He's just a faithful, ordinary Christian. But he had a profound influence on the early church as they were developing. So I think, I think there's something commendable in that. Number three, Barnabas was humble. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. I think this is so significant. Um, he's there. You know, Pastor Barnabas is now serving among this church, trying to help them. He's come up from Jerusalem, been sent by the apostles to strengthen them, to lead them. And uh, everything he's doing, he's, he's preaching this message of encouragement, and it's working. It says, a great many people were added to the Lord. So, Barnabas left. You know, the church, it's working. He's, he's getting his first shot at leadership in the church, and it's successful. It, people are being added to the Lord, and what does he do? He leaves. But why does he leave? He went to go find Saul. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And I just think that is astounding. Barnabas, uh, in the face of success, is less concerned about his own name staying in the spotlight and he's more concerned about the faithfulness of what's playing out there. He knows he needs help. There's too many believers. i got to go get somebody else who can help me lead these people. So he's totally willing to give up the spotlight for a little while to go find somebody who will actually take the spotlight far more than he does. And, and he, he, his, he's not building his own name. He's a humble man. He knows what's playing out is, is God's work, not his own work. How easy would it have been for Barnabas in this moment to... Get an inflated ego and a big head and, oh, look what, look how significant I am. But he knew, no, God's the one doing this work and God's the one who's, uh, this, is, this is his flock and they need to be cared for, so I need to go get some help. He was, a, he was a humble man, just another testimony to his faithfulness. Number four, Barnabas knew how to forgive. He understood the gospel, you could also write. Um, who does he go and get? He gets Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul the ravager, uh, as Bob pointed out, the great persecutor of the church. He has a heart of faith, and he's totally willing to see a spiritual future for this guy who had this horrible, horrible, sinful past. Um, and I, I don't want to overlook that at all. Uh, remember, Saul is not yet Paul. He's still called by Saul in this passage. He's not yet the great church planner. You know, he's been a good preacher as he was first converted. He was, he was proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's clearly an intelligent man. But uh, he doesn't have this, he's not viewed as this great guy yet. He still sort of carries this uh, ignominy of his, of his past, the, the shame uh, that he has from, from killing Christians in the past. It was Barnabas who first vouched for him. Don't forget that. In Jerusalem, he showed his willingness to forgive him way back then. But even then, the church doesn't know what to do with Saul. Like he's down there in Jerusalem trying to teach. The Jews are trying to kill him because he's turned on them. And so they, they eventually, back there in, in chapter 9, they eventually send him back to Tarsus. Like they don't, they don't know how to handle Saul in Jerusalem. You know, he, he's, he's a Christian. They acknowledge that. But they, they're just like, you, you got to go somewhere else, man. You're going to die here. We don't have a place for you. I don't know if maybe some of the original apostles didn't really want him to have a place, like still held on to some animosity. But he goes up to Tarsus, which by all accounts could have been the end of our entire history of Saul. We may have never heard from Saul again as he's just hanging out in his hometown of Tarsus until Barnabas. Once again, a man who knows how to forgive, who understands how big God's grace is, 
how much it truly does wash away all that is stained in our past. He goes in this moment of need and he goes and gets he goes and gets Saul. He knows that God knows how to use sinners to make his his kingdom work. He knows how he knows that God only uses sinners to build his kingdom. And he goes and gives this guy a chance and uh, and he vouches for him and puts him in leadership even though he's got a past. And I just I am profoundly uh, impressed by that. This guy understood the gospel. He's willing to give guys a, a shot. He's willing to uh, look at failure in the eyes and also understand repentance and know that God knows how to forgive sin and still use people. Incidentally, we're going to see this again in Acts part two, and I just want to foreshadow this because I think it's a profound glimpse of who Barnabas is. So in part two, Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent out on missionary journeys uh, by the church of Antioch. The Antioch church is going to become the hub of the entire world. In, in some ways, the church in Jerusalem begins to fade at this point, and the church in Antioch begins to take center stage. Um, and on their first missionary journey, we're told that they take a young guy with them. Anybody know his name? John Mark, yep. Um, and he's, he's the cousin of Barnabas, and they go out. Uh, he's mentioned briefly. It's his mother's house that they're meeting in there in Jerusalem uh, in, in chapter 12. Um, but they go out on this, this missionary journey. Well, Mark, halfway through, quits. They're in a riot. It's scary. And Mark is like, I am not built for this. I'm going home. And he goes back to Antioch. Um, well, Paul and Barnabas eventually get back, and they're telling the stories. God's done all this work, and they're about to go out again to go return to the churches that they planted and minister to them again. And Mark says, I'd like to go again. And it says a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas. One of them thought, no way, Jose. You've already proven to us that you can't cut it out there. And one of them thought, we could give this guy another chance. Who do you think that guy was? The son of, you know, son of encouragement, Barnabas. Joe the Jew, who doesn't go by that anymore. Uh, man, he knows how to forgive. He knows how to like, look at somebody's failures in the eye and still encourage them. Put more, I'll, nobody else will believe in you, but I'll put, I, I have enough belief for, for everyone. I, I have enough belief for both of us. I have enough hope for you, even in the face of your failures. He saw the good in people and he'd go looking for them. You know, I think that's why he was called... Barnabas. He, he, he had that kind of a character. Um, a strong enough hope for, for both of you. Um, number five, he left an impression on people. Uh, his love for Jesus, his faithfulness, his willingness to forgive was all so strong. His character was so strong that it provoked the same in the people he was around. His, his zeal for God was so profound that you walked away and you wanted to also be zealous for God. And I say this for two reasons from the text. First, this little church that he's pastoring starts to be known by their faithfulness as well. They start to be called Christians, which is significant. You know, we go by it, that just feels so normal now. But for them, this was an insult at first. You know, people were known by the cities where they came from. They were Galatians or Corinthians or Ephesians. But here, the, the other Antiochians are calling these people, this early church, they're calling them Christians, little Christs. You know, apparently he's your He's your nationality. He's your motherland. And they're like, yeah, he is. They take it as a badge of honor. They start to call themselves Christians. Um, but I love that. Their, their faithfulness to God is so strong that people around them see it and name them because of it. They get a new nickname just as Barnabas did. I, I see that as influence from Barnabas. And secondly, I also see him influencing them in this generosity. You know, verses 28 through 29, this you know, prophecy from Agabus. <coughs> 
that a great famine is coming. And verse 29 says, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. That is profound generosity. You know, Agabus' prophecy was that there'd be a famine in the whole world. So if you know there's a famine coming, what are you doing with your extra money? Saving it so that you can sustain your own family through this trial. But what do they do? They're being generous to the other believers. They're, they're giving to the other churches to make sure that they survive as well. Where do you think they learned that generosity? Probably from Barnabas, the guy who sold his field and gave it away. I mean, I just, I just can't express to you as I read this little paragraph about the church in Antioch how much I see Barnabas' influence on them. So, all that to say, my, my big point today, men be like Barnabas. Now, be, be men who encourage other men. Be men who are faithful, quietly faithful, and humble, and not looking to build your own name, but looking to build the kingdom, who know how to forgive, who know how to look at somebody who's failed and, and see how God can still use them in the future. Go grab a younger brother and be a Barnabas to them. Spur them on towards Jesus. You know, invest in them, encourage them, and, and see them grow like this. Uh, we're going to see Paul do some incredible things, and we're going to see Paul write most of our New Testament. And I just want you to remember, Paul wouldn't be there if it wasn't for a guy like Barnabas. So who, who are the young guys in your missional community group, in your uh, sitting in front of you in the row at church, sitting at this table right now, who God might have enormous things for? If, if somebody will just look at them and say, I see it, I see it in you, you can do it. When you're, when you're led towards ministry, I think about my own life. If there hadn't been some men who looked at me as I'm terrified by the calling of God upon my life and said, I see it, brother. I see it. You can do this. I wouldn't be here today. So don't underestimate the value that you can have on other people's lives in this way. Be like Barnabas, guys. Uh, enjoyed this time with you guys. Let me pray for us as we conclude. We'll see you in February. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace in our lives. And we're grateful that uh, there are men like Barnabas still living today. Men who put hope down in our souls when we're feeling hopeless. Men who uh, see something in us that maybe we don't even see ourselves. Uh, men who are willing to look past our failures and look past our uh, mistakes and look past our own prideful ambition, Lord, and their own glorious humility, Lord, and, and spur us on towards you. And I pray we'd all be men like that. I pray we would take time to invest in others and we would see your kingdom grow as a result. Uh, thank you for Barnabas and his influence. Though it is small, though he's hardly even named in the Bible, Father. His, uh, his faithfulness is profound, and we can see that. So shape us into men like him. It's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen.